In this Wednesday night series, we started after Christmas, uh, running up through the spring, we're talking about the Bible. We started off talking about the doctrine of the Bible. What is it that we believe about the Bible? And I keep reminding you of all these doctrinal truths that we talked about on the front side of spring break because each and every week, tonight included, we're building on that foundation. Some of the things that we're going to say tonight, some of the rules of hermeneutics that we're going to talk about are built on these ideas that the Bible is inspired by God. It's inerrant in its content. It's, it's perspicuity. It's clarity. It's authority, necessity, sufficiency, power, unity, beauty. All those things are the foundation for what we're talking about when we talk about hermeneutics. How do we actually interpret this book? How do we make sense of this book? And so we've talked about what is the canon. That was sort of the idea of this is the playing field that we're playing the game on. We're going to talk about all the rules, but the canon is sort of these are the boundaries where these rules apply. We've talked about an introduction to what is hermeneutics. We've talked about the interpreter tonight. We're going to talk about some basic tools. And then in the next four Wednesday nights, the last four Wednesday nights, we're going to talk about how you work through specific genres of Scripture, and we'll take a couple of those each Wednesday night. Uh, Tonight... As you're thinking about some of these rules that I'm setting before you, this is how you ought to think about what we're doing. It's one thing to hand somebody a fish and feed them. It's another thing to teach someone how to fish where they can then feed themselves. That's kind of what we're doing right now on Wednesday nights. When you preach a sermon... The preacher, the speaker, the Sunday school teacher does the work, the study, the preparation... And then they feed God's people. That's an important part of teaching and preaching. It's an important part of church life. It's also important that you as a Christian are not completely dependent on me, your pastor, or your Sunday school teacher, but that you also know how to feed yourself. And so the rules that we're talking about on Wednesday nights when we talk about interpretation, hermeneutics, the Bible, are intended for you to be able to fish on your own or to make sense of the Bible on your own. So let's start with baseball. That seems like a logical place to start. Let's talk about baseball. We're a couple of weeks into the 2021 baseball season. It's a real baseball season. At least in some states, it's a real baseball season. Uh, The Rangers got to move in officially to their new stadium, and they got a lot of attention, positive and negative, for having a completely packed stadium, whatever you feel about that. That's a picture of opening day, and uh, they were excited to be there. How many of you, I just have informal questions, I'm curious. How many of you are baseball fans? Okay, some of you are not. Some of you are baseball fans. How many of you would say baseball is your favorite sport? How many of you like to, hold your hands up high on this one, How many of you like to watch baseball on television? And I want you to look around at all the people who like to take naps. All the people whose hand is up, they like to take naps. Here's the thing. I like baseball. I think baseball is the best sport to go to with people that you actually want to be with. Football is noisy and loud. Basketball is like nonstop chaos. Baseball, you actually get to be with people. So that's a positive thing. Uh, baseball is by far the worst sport to watch on television. And I don't care what you say or think. It's just terrible. It's absolutely painful. But baseball is the best sport for movies. 
And I'm just, this is pure bonus material for you tonight because I love you. I just got to thinking about it. These are, in case you're curious, the four best, this is a definitive list, the four best baseball movies of all time in order. There's really not any objection you can raise to this list at all. Number one is A Sandlot. Number two is Field of Dreams. Number three is The Natural. And number four is Major League. And I did some informal polling with the staff today. Don't be like Jake and start talking to me about the rookie. When Jake said the rookie belongs on that list, I said, why did we even hire you in the first place? That is a ridiculous thing to say. The rookie has no business on this list. Somebody else who will remain nameless because I kind of like this person said, well, what about a league of their own? And I said, no, absolutely not. No, 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 no. And they said, but it's got the most quoted line in all baseball movies ever. There's no crying in baseball. And I said, no, that doesn't matter. Don't cry about it. That movie doesn't belong on the list. So baseball, baseball is really something else. Great movies, great in person, terrible to watch it on TV. If you know anything about baseball, sometimes you hear people talk about a five-tool player. They say, this guy, maybe if it's girls in softball, this guy, this gal is a five-tool player. What that means is they can hit for power, home runs, the long ball. They can hit for average. They're not going to strike out 8,000 times when they're not hitting home runs. They can field the ball, they can throw the ball, and they can run. They can do those five things really, really well. And if you're a five-tool player, you're going to get a college scholarship somewhere. And if you're a five-tool player in college, maybe you get drafted at some point. That's sort of the the gold standard for a really, really good baseball player is a five-tool player. So our aim tonight is for you to leave as five-tool Bible interpreters, okay? I'm going to lay out five tools that you need basic tools, these are in your notes, the analogy of faith, literal interpretation, grammatical, historical, didactic and historical passages and meaning of words. Five tools, this is not the only five that you need, but these are a big five when you think about hermeneutics. And these are tools that will serve you wherever you are studying in the Bible, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. So, tool number one. The Analogy of Faith. I have a couple of quotes for you from R.C. Sproul. He has a very helpful book called Knowing Scripture. He says this, The analogy of faith is the rule that Scripture is to interpret Scripture. No part of Scripture can be interpreted in such a way as to render it in conflict with what is clearly taught elsewhere in the Scripture. You use the Bible to interpret the Bible. You don't come up with any interpretation of any passage that is clearly in contradiction with another clear part of the Bible. You try to find ways to make it all fit. He goes on to say this, if the Bible is the inspired word of God, you remember that list I showed you, all the doctrinal things we believe about the Bible. The top of that list, the very first thing we talked about is the Bible is inspired by God. If it's inspired by God, that means it's inerrant, without error. It means it's unified in its message. If the Bible is inspired, the inspired word of God, then the analogy of faith is not an option, but a requirement of interpretation. It's a requirement of interpretation. Now, I'm going to be honest. There are places 
where you take two passages of Scripture, different Old Testament passages, Old Testament, New Testament, different New Testament passages. You set them side by side, and at first glance, you look at them and you say, yeah, those don't seem to go together. Those don't seem to fit together. But we've already talked about, we believe that this book is inspired by God. It's inerrant in content. It's unified in its message. And so we said a few weeks ago, we don't want to approach those apparent contradictions with a hermeneutic of suspicion. We don't want to just start out presuming that the Bible's just a jumbled up bunch of mess. You can't really fit it all together. We want to approach humbly with a hermeneutic of faith saying maybe there's a way to hold these two passages together, to, you, to allow, to let the Bible interpret the Bible. That's a requirement if the Bible is actually the inspired word of God. So let's talk about a couple of examples. Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 is a very structured account of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then we get into this on the first day, God said, let there be light. And there was light on the second day, the third day, all the way through. It's very, very structured. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. Then you get to Genesis 2, and some scholars say this is a completely different version of creation. Genesis 1 tells a story one way. This is completely different. It's not the same story. Genesis 2 is not as structured. And Genesis 2 doesn't say much about the stars and the moon and the earth and all that. It talks about a garden, and it focuses in on Adam and Eve and how God created Adam and Eve. And when you look at the two, there are some people who say, look, they're not the same. They don't fit together. They're contradictory. Somebody had this version, somebody had this version, and somebody mashed them up together in the same book. If you have eyes to see it, it's plain that they're in contradiction with each other. You and I approach it with a hermeneutic of faith, and we say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Genesis 1 gives you the big picture of all of the things that God created. That's the purpose of Genesis 1, to show you the size and the scope and the glory of all that God created. Genesis 2 comes along. We're no longer reading about Elohim and the grandeur of creation. Now we're reading about Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, and these people that he created in his image. It's like you take Genesis 1.27 where God creates man in his own image. Male and female, he creates them. And Genesis 2 zooms in on that and says, let me tell you more about this piece. And when you read it that way, then they fit together perfectly. Let me give you another example. Look in your Bible at Psalm 82. Psalm 82. Psalm 82 verse 1 says, God has taken his place in the divine Council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. There's a divine council, big G God is there, and in the midst of this council is the big G God holding judgment, surrounded by or in the midst of the little G gods. You read that and you say, well, that's really interesting. And it's also interesting, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but in the Ten Commandments, 
The very first commandment, Exodus 20, verse 3, says, You shall have no other gods before me. If those were the only two verses in the Bible, you may come away saying, well, it sounds like there's one big G God and then there's a whole bunch of other little G gods. And you might kind of be confused about, well, what's the relationship between them and why is one capitalized and one lowercase? Why is the big G God singular and the little G gods are plural? And you may come away wrestling with that. You may be a little bit confused. What do I make of that? Is there one God or is there more than one God's. But fortunately, those aren't the only two verses we have in the Bible. So, for example, you can turn to John 10 on your own. In John 10, Jesus actually quotes Psalm 82. So, if you want to understand Psalm 82, a good place to turn is John 10 and to see what Jesus had to say about it. You could look at what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where he says, There is one God. There's one mediator between God and man. It's the man, Jesus Christ. There's only one God. And you say, okay, Paul is really clear in that passage. And the things that Jesus says about Psalm 82 help me make sense of these other passages that may leave you thinking, well, it sounds like there's just a lot of gods out there. There's multiple gods out there. And this brings us to an important point. Not only do we use Scripture to interpret Scripture, but we use the more clear parts of Scripture to interpret the less clear parts of Scripture. It's just a general rule of interpretation. There's some things in the Bible that are really clear and plain. There's some things in the Bible that are really hard to make sense of. One of the guys that preached last night in our Emmanuel Institute class, he picked a really hard passage from the book of James. And he got up and he talked about one part of it and he says, I don't know what this means. It's just not exactly clear. I read eight commentaries and got eight answers. And he made a great point. He said, if it's not a clear thing, it's probably not the main thing. And he focused on the main things, the clear things. That was a great way to approach that passage, and it's a way to interpret the Bible. The clear parts help us understand the less clear parts. And I've given you a couple of examples. Go back and read Exodus 4, 24 to 26. Moses has finally agreed to go back and bring the people of Israel out of Egypt. There's a long argument. God wins. Moses is about to head back. And that night, God shows up and he's about to kill Moses. And you're like, what in the world? God's about to kill Moses? And then his wife does something really strange and rubs blood on his feet. And then God doesn't kill him. That's a really strange story. It's not the most important thing about Moses that you need to know. You look at that story, if you're trying to understand circumcision and the way that God and Moses related to each other, that passage should not be the foundational bedrock that you build on. I'm not telling you don't wrestle with it. I'm not telling you scratch it out. I'm not telling you that it's hopeless to understand it. I'm just telling you it's a really confusing story. So don't make it the centerpiece about what you believe about Moses and his relationship with God and circumcision and all the rest. Another example, you can look at 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Paul's talking about the resurrection. He's trying to argue to the Corinthians that this is a central thing. And then all of a sudden he pops off and says something about baptism for the dead. And you read that and you're like, what in the world is baptism for the dead? And the Mormons swoop in and they say, we know what baptism for the dead is. We've got a whole doctrine and practice and idea built on that very verse. And we look at it and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
That doesn't seem to be the most important passage in the New Testament when it comes to baptism. For whatever it is that we're going to come away believing about baptism, there's some other passages that are really clear and straightforward. And 1 Corinthians 15, 29 is not one of them. So yes, we can wrestle with it. Yes, we can try to make sense of it. We ought to do that. But we shouldn't make an obscure passage like that, a challenging passage like that, the bedrock of what we believe. So all of this falls under the analogy of faith. Scripture interprets Scripture. The Bible interprets the Bible. And we use the more clear parts to help us make sense of the less clear parts. Tool number two, literal interpretation. Here's another quote from Sproul. The Bible should be interpreted according to its literal sense. Interpret the Bible according to its literal sense. Everybody like that rule? I'm quoting Sproul. I told you he's a smart guy. I put it in the notes. I like that rule. We're all on board with that, right? Interpret the Bible according to its literal sense. Literal. So, Exodus 15, 3. The Lord is a man of war. Yahweh is a man. That's what you're literally telling me? Song of Songs, Song of Solomon 4.1. Your eyes are doves. That's kind of creepy. You said take it literal. Your eyes are doves. That's like out of a horror movie or something. Matthew 5, 29 to 30. Cut your hand off and pluck your eyes out. Y'all ready? Literal, right? We all, nobody objected. I gave you the chance to say this is a lousy rule. We don't like that. You all nodded. You filled the blank in, literal. Revelation 8.10, I love this one. It says that a star, a star fell from the heavens, crashed into the earth. A star, a giant, giant, giant ball of burning gas crashes into our small little rock of a planet. And do you know what happened? The only thing that happened is a third of the water disappeared. That's it. A star literally fell and hit the earth, and all that happened is we lost a third of our water. Literal, right? Listen, when we interpret the Bible literally, we consider the rules of grammar and syntax the use of metaphor and hyperbole, and the context and the genre. The genre is really, really, really important. And you can go way off base with this literal stuff if you don't take some of these things into consideration. This is one of the reasons you hear people all the time in the news mocking evangelical Christians for taking the Bible literally. And yes, we take the Bible literally, but we take it literally as it's intended to be taken, not woodenly literally regardless of the context or the syntax or the hyperbole or the genre or any of the rest of it. So we're going to talk about genre in the next couple weeks. One of the biggest, in fact, the biggest style or genre in the Bible is narrative, story, okay? Usually, when you're reading narrative, You just take it literally. And when it says this person did that and this person went here and this happened, you just, you take it literally. Narrative, you just 
That's what you do. One of the next biggest genres in the Bible is poetry. That's what Song of Solomon is. You usually don't take poetry completely literally. Narrative is telling you this is what happened. Many times poetry is telling you this is how I feel about something. And they use images and they use metaphors and they use all sorts of different figures of speech. And you don't take it literally. And then there's something called apocalypse. Parts of the book of Daniel, parts of Ezekiel, most of the book of Revelation. Narrative tells you this is what's happened. Poetry tells you this is what I'm feeling. Apocalypse tells you this is what's real even though you can't see it. And it uses all sorts of images like stars falling down to the earth. That if you take it completely literal, you say, that's kind of hard for me to wrap my brain around. That a star would fall to the earth and the whole earth doesn't burn up and we end up with two-thirds of our water supply still intact? That's kind of remarkable. I don't, I don't understand that. So you don't take it completely literally. You guys know how to do this all the time. Right? You take things literally as it's intended to be taken. I'm going to use this example a couple of more times before we're done. Your grocery list. You go to the store with a grocery list. Not for a second do you look at that and say, toilet paper. Now, what does that really mean? You just say, there's a list. I'm supposed to take this literal. This isn't, this isn't a poem. This is not an apocalyptic end-of-the-world cautionary tale. This is a literal list. Go get this from the store. You just take it literal. You don't even think about it. But if I was to get one of these cards from my kids, Dad, your top dog, I would not ever throw that back in their face and say, I am not a dog. Happy birthday to the world's best pop. How offensive that you would call me a pop. We live in Texas. It's called a Coke. It's not called a pop. Right? You just read that. Like it's so preposterous that you, it's not even that funny. You're, you're giving me a courtesy laugh. I know. It's not that funny. It's so silly. But that's what people do with the Bible sometimes. They take poetry and they take prophecy, and they especially take apocalypse. They say, we want to take the Bible literally, so we're going to read the book of Revelation and the end of Daniel and parts of Ezekiel, and we're going to take it literally. And you come up with some really, really crazy stuff. And so what we're saying is, yes, please, by all means, take the Bible literally. We are going to take it literally. But when the Bible is using figures of speech, we're going to take it as it's intended to be taken. We're not going to be crazy people with it, and we just need to be aware of that. A lot of you, I was thinking this afternoon, a lot of you, if you had kids that grew up reading little chapter books, you've read Amelia Bedelia. Amelia Bedelia is funny for kids because she takes everything literally, and she just does dopey, silly, stupid things because she just takes everything completely literally. All right, tool number three, grammatical historical interpretation. For about a thousand years, the church interpreted the Bible with a quadriga or a quadriga, however you want to say it, that included literal, moral, allegorical, anagogical interpretations. This is from, give or take, 400, 450 to 1450, 1500, thousand-year period. This is how the church 
interpreted the Bible. In ancient Rome, a quadriga looked like this. It was a chariot pulled by four horses. And so when these church fathers, these church councils were meeting, they're trying to think about how to interpret the Bible. They use this word quadriga, quadriga. They pull it out and they say, that's how we're going to interpret the Bible. There's going to be four interpretations pulling the way that we make sense of the Bible. And I'll give you one example that you find in a lot of the the old writings from this period of church history. Let's take the word Jerusalem. Everybody knows that word, Jerusalem. It's in the Bible a lot. How do we interpret the word Jerusalem? This is how they would have done it with the the fourfold quadriga. They would say the literal meaning is that's the capital of Israel or later the capital of Judah, okay? As the capital for God's people, the capital city. That's what it literally means. We say, great. They say there's also a moral meaning to Jerusalem. And on a moral level, it's really not talking about the city. It's talking about your heart or your soul. And there's an allegorical interpretation, and they would have most commonly said Jerusalem is talking about the church, and they would have said there's an anagogical interpretation, a future-oriented interpretation is talking about the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth. And they would lay these four types of interpretations out for all the verses, all the passages in the Bible. Here's how it worked, okay? Most of the time, everyone agreed about the top category, the literal interpretation. There wasn't a lot of debate about that. You just read the text and you said, well, what are they literally talking about? Most people could make sense of that and they came up with the same answer. And then as you work down the list, it was a complete free-for-all because it really didn't matter what the text said at all. You just sort of looked at it and said, well, what do I want to put in here? You know, I want to say something about the heart. Do I want to say something about the church? Do I want to say something about heaven and eternity, and people just filled in those next three spots with whatever they wanted to put in there, and no one agreed, and there was all sorts of crazy, crazy ideas that came into existence and were floating around because of this fourfold approach to interpretation. Then in the 1500s, the reformers advocated the grammatical historical method of interpretation. The grammatical historical approach insists that each passage has one fixed meaning that is rooted in history. Grammatical. The grammar matters. What it says matters. History. We don't get to just invent and fill in the blank whatever we think this passage might mean or might secretly be referring to. That's a free-for-all. There's no control for that. There's no rules for that. We're constrained by the text, and we're constrained by what it meant to the original audience. So who wrote it? Who did they write it to? Why did they write it? How do we make sense of this language that's been putting down, whatever genre it may be? That's the grammatical interpretation, the grammatical historical interpretation. It insists that each passage be interpreted according to the normal rules of grammar. So there's rules for prose. There's rules for poetry. There's rules for apocalypse. Figure out what kind of writing you're looking at and use those rules. Know the vocabulary. Know the syntax. Pay attention to the verb tenses. Is it past, present, future? What's the mood of the verbs? Is it a command? Is it a question? Is it a statement? All of these things matter. Grammar actually matters. I know you hated sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade diagramming sentences and working through all that stuff, but it really is important 
when you're trying to interpret this text. So that's the grammatical historical approach to interpretation. Next, the didactic and historical passages tool. Okay, the word didactic comes from a Greek word that means to teach. Okay, it's, it's talking about passages that are just teaching passages. They're just straightforward, direct statements of truth. Historical passages, now we're talking about narrative. We're talking about stories. Those are two different types of passages in the Bible. Direct statements, didactic passages, and stories. How do we make sense of these two things together? Typically, we allow didactic passages to explain historical passages. And we interpret historical passages in light of didactic passages. So look at Genesis chapter 3. This is a, a difficult exercise because we know lots of things about God. We've read the Bible. We know the rest of the story. But just imagine you're starting in the beginning and you're reading through the creation account of Genesis 1 and you're reading in Genesis 2 and you read about Adam sinning in Genesis 3 and then you come to verse 8 and it says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? Where are you? They didn't have the find my phone app. God couldn't pull it up and say, Adam, where's your cell phone? I see you hiding in the bush over here. God had to ask him, where are you at? I don't know where you're at. I can't locate you. Can you please tell me your location? If you don't know anything else about the Bible and you're reading this narrative, this story, this historical account, you look at that question and you say, hmm, looks like God doesn't know everything. Adam was hiding. God had to ask him where he was. But if you keep reading, look at the book of Psalms, Psalm 139. This is a didactic passage. It's also poetry. Poetry can be didactic. It's clear teaching. Psalm 139 verse 1 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the grave, you are there. If I take the wings in the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely... The darkness shall cover me, and the light around me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. And you come away from that didactic passage saying, God knows everything. He knows absolutely everything. He is absolutely everywhere. He's omniscient and he's omnipresent. And then you go back to the story, the narrative, the historical account, and you say, okay, how do we piece these two things together? You look at Genesis and you say, well, God wasn't looking for information. He was looking to draw Adam out. He was looking to engage him 
in relationship. And you fit those two passages together. But this is an important rule. You allow the clear, straightforward teaching of the Bible, the didactic passage, to help you make sense of the story. Think about this example. Uh, Genesis 29 and 30 says that Jacob had four wives. Actually, two wives and two concubines, but four wives. You can read about Solomon in 1 Kings 11. He had more than four. He had a lot. So, is that okay? It says he did it. It's in the Bible. Don't you take it literally? Those were men who believed in God. Those were men who had important covenant relationships with God. But those are details that come up in narrative. And many times the narrative is simply telling you this is what happened. And it's not necessarily telling you this is what you ought to do. It's just telling you this is what happened. And you say, well, are there any other clear didactic passages in the Bible that would tell me how many wives I ought to have? Well, as a matter of fact, Genesis 2 says, in the beginning, God took a man and a woman, and he brought them together, and he created marriage. You can look at the Ten Commandments, right? This prohibition against adultery. You should be faithful to your spouse. You can listen to what Jesus says when he's questioned about divorce and remarriage and all the rest, and he says, what does God say in the beginning? He says that there's a man and the woman, and they're brought together in lifelong union, and what God has brought together, man should not separate. The two become one. Many times the Bible says this is what happened. It doesn't mean this is what you ought to do. It's descriptive, telling you what happened. It's not normative, telling you that this is what you ought to do. One last example, I gave you Acts chapter 8 and Ephesians 1. In Acts 8, a group of Samaritan people trust in Jesus. They hear the gospel and they believe but they don't receive the Holy Spirit when they believe. There's a gap. They believe in Jesus. Then the apostles show up. Then they get the Holy Spirit later. And some of our charismatic friends look at that passage and they say, well, it's right there in the book of Acts. That's how it happened then. That must be how it happens now. First you believe in Jesus, and then later something else happens, you get the Holy Spirit in a delayed sort of second experience. And we would say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Acts is narrative. Acts isn't necessarily saying to you, this is what has to happen. This is how it always happens. Acts is telling you, this is what happened in Samaria. And it doesn't even happen that way every time in the book of Acts. We say, are there any clear passages that would help us make sense of that? Well, you could look at Ephesians 1. It talks about the role of God the Father in salvation, the role of God the Son in salvation. Then it talks about the role of God the Holy Spirit. That when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit seals you. He's a deposit. All believers receive the Holy Spirit on their conversion, on their repentance and their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that clear didactic passage helps you make sense of the narrative. You can get a lot of crazy doctrinal stuff if you let the narrative control the didactic. So you generally what you try to do is you let the clear statements help you make sense of the narrative. One last thought, the meaning of words. The meaning of words. Words are arbitrary signs or sounds that refer to things, actions, or ideas. All words have a range of meaning that varies 
depending on the context. Okay? Quick exercise. I'm going to put a word on the screen. I want you to lock in on the first thing that you think about when you see the word. Okay? Here's the word. You got two seconds. One, two. Which of these things did you think about? A hand? Like a physical hand? Or did any of you think about a watch? Hand on a watch? That's a hand. Did any of you think about a poker hand? Maybe you thought about, I'm going to hand you something. It's an action. Or maybe you thought about, I'm going to give you a hand. That doesn't mean I'm going to cut my hand off. We talked about that earlier and said we don't have to do that. So we're not cutting our hand off, but that means I'm going to help you. Right? All these ideas fall under this word, hand. You've got to understand that that dynamic is at play in English, it's at play in Spanish, it's at play in Greek, and it's at play in Hebrew. And it certainly comes into play when you start translating from one language into another language, and sometimes the words you translate to don't necessarily have the same semantic range. So this can be a tricky thing. Some words in the Bible have multiple meanings that vary depending on the context. And I gave you just a couple of examples in parentheses. Will. And specifically, I'm thinking about God's will. If I asked you to define what is God's will, there's about three or four really good biblical answers you could come up with. You could say, well, God's will is his moral desire for human beings expressed in the Ten Commandments. That's his will. Do these things, don't do these things. That's, that's God's will. Or you could say God's will is the sovereign outworking of his purposes in history, raising up kingdoms and tearing down kingdoms and planning salvation through his son and all of these different things, the return of Christ, these things that will certainly, certainly happen. That's God's will. Or you could just say God's will Paul tells the Thessalonians, is for your sanctification. Don't indulge in sexual immorality. Does that mean that they weren't capable of doing that? No, they were capable of indulging in sexual immorality and not being sanctified. So this word has multiple meanings. Justify. We worked through some of this last night in our uh, Emmanuel Institute sermons on the book of James. In the book of James, most people recognize that this word justify has a slightly different emphasis than it has when you read it on the, the lips or on the end of the pen of the Apostle Paul. Paul talks about we're justified, we're declared righteous in God's sight. And what James seems to be saying is we're justified, our faith is proved to be real or genuine. It's two different meanings, and you've got to just acknowledge that they don't mean the exact same thing in both places. Sanctification. Sanctify. I got an email this last week, somebody asking me about sanctification. Sometimes sanctification talks about the process by which we become more Christ-like, more holy. Sometimes sanctification talks about a once-for-all thing that God does in our lives. He sanctifies us, and it's done. He sets us apart for something special. One's a process, one's an instantaneous thing that God does. You just have to pay attention to the context. Add to this meaning of words difficulty. The way we use words changes over time, and this has effect on the way that we translate the Bible. Did I give you the words in parentheses on this point? These are great words. Anybody know what anon means? I'm not talking about QAnon. 
Anon. These are all words in the King James Version, by the way. Anon means immediately. Beret. Anybody use the word beret today? Nobody? Beret. It means to expose. How about feign? Feign means gladly. How about let? You're like, that's an easy one. That's an easy one. Did you know that sometimes in the King James Version, the word let actually means hinder or stop? You better pay attention. You KJV people, you better be on your toes. Scrip. Like, I got one of those today. I went to the pharmacy. No, this is your wallet. That's what you used when you went to the pharmacy. Trow. Trow means you think. Wat. That's a good word. Wat. That means you know something. Now you know something you don't need to know. All those word meanings. Translation's tricky. This is why I don't like the King James Version. When I was a pastor in Kentucky, they were King James in the pew and... We read from the King James every morning, and I did it about three times and stumbled over it and said, I don't know what these words mean. I'm not reading this. Like, no, we don't, no one knows what some of these words mean. King James is a great translation 400 years ago when people spoke that kind of English. There's words in it that are really tricky now, and you can hang on to it. I know when you get used to a translation, you love a translation, there's sentimental value. That's great. That's not a problem at all. You just need to be aware there's some tricky words that you need to think through when you're dealing with matters of interpretation. Last thought, the use of a word in a specific context constitutes the single most crucial criterion for the meaning of a word. Context is king. A word has a range of meanings. When you look it up in a concordance or a dictionary, that doesn't mean you get to just pick whichever possible meaning you want and throw it into that particular verse. It means that you've got to do the work of figuring out which one of these particular meanings fits in this particular context, and that's a challenging thing. So you've got to be careful with the meaning of words. So look, in baseball, you think about a five-tool player. If you're a five-tool player... You're a real player. But it's not the only five things you do in baseball. We don't talk about bunting when we talk about five-tool players, but occasionally you're going to need to bunt. And when we talk about five-tool players, we haven't said anything about the rules of the game or strategy or how you maneuver players in the game. All of that's legitimate. So when I tell you here's five tools, I'm saying to you, these are five really, really important tools as you begin to think about how do I make sense of this book on my own. It's not the only five things that you need to know how to do, but these are five things that will help you not just receive a fish from your Sunday school teacher or your pastor, but actually learn how to fish yourself and make sense of this book on your own. So let's pray, and then we'll sing on our way out.